0: Be seated. Well, for me, which passages this morning, and again, I wasn't sure whether to try and do an overview of all of it, or jump into something very specific. We're going to try and do something very specific. But the Isaiah passage talks about, before we were born, someone knew us. The psalm talks about, I've placed a song in your heart. And this lovely worship song that we just finished singing and its lines, I sing in the shadow of your wings. What a great image. And that sums up where we're going today. Perhaps I should just sit down and continue with Eucharist. Our gospel text focuses on two distinct themes. The identity of Jesus and the meaning of discipleship. And in John, neither of these is static. There are developmental they develop in our ongoing relationship and dialogue with God. And this is reflected in our New Testament text and the questions of Jesus and the two disciples to one another. And so I want to focus in on those questions. Jesus says to them, what are you looking for? And the disciples' strange answer, where are you stand? And Jesus then inviting response, come. see. And to illustrate what I'm getting at, I want to talk about love and romance. I think I got your attention, maybe even a reaction. Our Western notion of romantic love is a wonderful thing, but it often is impossible to sustain, and inevitably we bump against its limits unless we find ways to transcend it. And we don't tend to transcend it very well. And the media is full of its images. We want it, but we often become scared of it. And almost all of our modern songs praise it, cry over it, regret it, seek it, mourn it, mourn the loss of it, resist it, but are preoccupied with it, endlessly. We hardly know what to sing about besides that. I see no songs about preparing meals or watching soccer games or helping with homework or changing diapers or taking out the garbage or endless snow removal. The ordinary things of of life that actually support a loving and functioning relationship with those we love and with our culture. Robert Johnson, in his book, love the title of this book, Balancing Heaven and Earth, suggests that this romantic notion cannot be sustained. It is too objectified, he says. By that I mean it puts too much weight on the object or person we love. Why, he asks. We fall in love. We give our soul away. And it feels so good to give our soul away. And it feels so good to have someone give their soul to us. And we're walking on sunshine and he suggests that this notion of love has a shelf life of about six months to a year and a half. (laughs) And then he says we begin to realize that it's too much to be responsible for that other person's soul. And it's too much for them to be responsible for ours. And so we try and give them their soul back. Or they try and give their soul back to us. And suddenly we experience that as a roadblock or a rejection. and We don't always like the way others treat our soul. And yet there are times, admittedly, where the handling of one another's souls is inappropriate or difficult and the relationships end. Or the relationship becomes one of come here, get away, resistance, indifference, and ultimately rejection. We love the sunrise of romantic love. We don't know what to do about the sunset. And so we're tempted to look for another sunrise somewhere else. Or in frustration, we abandon the whole project and we settle for some self-protecting substitutes. Sex, fantasy, image fixation, addictive behaviors, preoccupying busyness, not bad things in all cases, but often self-protective strategies. The point I'm making is that I think sometimes our sense of spirituality follows that same pattern. We give our hearts to Jesus. We have those mountaintop experiences of spirituality that just sweep us off our feet. We accept Jesus, we experience the Holy Spirit in overwhelming and sometimes unpredictable ways. And we have those experiences of seeing God everywhere and everything, and in everything. And God seems to be getting bigger and bigger, and it feels so good. And we sing praise songs of adoration, seeking to sustain this romantic notion of God in me. Oh, how I love Jesus. Sometimes to convince ourselves, perhaps, and one another, that our idealized romantic notion of spirituality is still intact. But then something happens, and we experience an absence, or the quietness of God, or we feel guilty and judged by God, or we judge others because their experience of God is different than ours. And we begin to notice that inviting Jesus into my heart doesn't always make everything sunshine. And we feel abandoned. Where are you? I thought you were here for me. And we're tempted to abandon the whole project. Or we just settle in and go through the motions. I will confess that sometimes I feel as if the over-top, over-the-top public worship can be an inappropriate display of spiritual affection. I love God. I long for intimacy with God. But sometimes I think God and I just need to get a room. So what if we are invited to be the nurturers of our own souls? God places a divine spark, an image of God's self in each of us. But then invites our minds, our emotions, our wills, our egos, as faculties of free will to interact with those souls in service to those souls, to the part of us that is uniquely created in that divine image. In our text, Jesus asks the disciples as they walk towards him, what do you want? He doesn't just tell them what they need. And unsure, but knowing that they want something, they awkwardly say, where do you stand? And Jesus simply says, come and see. I want to look at those two words because they're very unique in the Greek language and in this setting. The word come, erkomai, is not just a moving from one place to another, a moving towards. It actually, in its Greek original language, means start out, set out, begin a movement towards, begin to check it out. Begin this lifelong journey of coming and seeing. And the word see, arahu. There are at least three different words in Greek for see. There's one word that is just, I see something. I see it with my eyes. I observe it in passing, like the advertising that flashes by you as you go down the highway. The second word for see in Greek has the idea of to see something and all of a sudden find yourself staring at it, gazing, and it attracts your attention. This is the word see that is used when Mary walks into the tomb and sees that the body is gone. What the? The third word to see means that you find yourself staring at it and suddenly you get a deeper perception of it. You're so attracted to it that you want to incorporate it into yourself. It's that divine sense of awe. And that's the word that's used here. Come and see. This was the beginning. No. Jesus is saying, check it out. This wasn't a miracle where the disciples suddenly were so overwhelmed by who Jesus was that they just followed him blindly. They were so intrigued by his language of invitation that they wanted to find out more. And this was the beginning of a lifelong journey inherent in these questions. And relationally over time, Jesus repeatedly asks the questions in our current circumstance. What are you looking for now? This is the journey of faith. And this agenda question of Jesus is reflected in all the images that are given to Jesus in just that first chapter of John. If you look through that first chapter, you'll see seven or eight different images. He's called the Lamb of God, which was a huge image in the Jewish tradition. He's called the Son of God, divine and divinity incarnate. He's called a rabbi, which really means teacher. And reflects a desire on the listener to learn. He's called the Messiah, means the anointed one. And remember that the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. He's called the King of Israel, reflective of the image and history of the divine right of kings, or the kings as divine. And he's called the Son of Man. That's used 81 times in the New Testament, or in the Gospels, and emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He's also called him about whom Moses in the Law and Prophets wrote. And ideologically, people have argued over which one of these is the most accurate and correct. We fought wars over these. But our text suggests something different. Each person encountered Jesus. that encountered Jesus came to him with a different set of expectations and needs. One thinks he needs a sacrifice for guilt. Another thinks she needs a teacher. Another wants to see God. Another wants proof of the fulfillment of scriptures. And on and on, an endless list of perceived needs and wants. And Jesus' words about himself suggest that all of these are emotion towards who he is. Not a definitive, but an emotion towards who he is. And so I want to suggest there's an invitation and a caution here. We as a church cannot act as if we have answered the definitive question of who Jesus is. A relational interaction will continuously discover new images, new metaphors for an understanding of God. This is the message of the Christ. What do you need today? What are you looking for today? If you think you need a sacrifice, come to me. If you need a scapegoat to ease your guilt, instead, come to me. If you need someone to triumph over all the areas of loss in your life, come to me, come to me. If you need an advocate, come to me. What are you looking for? Come and see, I am all of those and more. Now this makes accepting Jesus a much bigger process than making a decision of assent or answering an altar call. Yes, we come, and the Christ always asks, as Jesus did, what are you looking for? It's almost like the disciples were unsure. I'm looking for something, thought we found it with John, but we just got a better offer, and at least we want to check it out. So, where are you staying? Jesus doesn't give them his address, a one-time place where he abides, He says, keep coming, keep coming and keep seeing. And just as each successive disciple had his needs and expectations met when he encountered Jesus, the text also suggests that when the members of the faith community bring their new needs and expectations to Jesus, those needs will somehow also be met. Ask and it shall be given, seek and you will find. And these stories remind us that discipleship is an active, daily engagement with Jesus in an ongoing dialogue of being asked, what do you want? And our response, I think I know. This is what it feels like I want right now. Where are you hanging out? Because I want to abide with you. And so this isn't a static discipleship filled with certainty. This is a discipleship of journeying. Years ago, I had the opportunity of hearing the priest Henri Nouwen lecture, or speak, and he was speaking to his community of disabled and handicapped adults. And there were a number of us business people, I think I've told some of you this story before, sitting on the fringes. And in his talk, he talked about wasting five minutes a day with God, doing nothing with God for five minutes. And if you do that for a month, he said, it'll change your life. So during the question and answer period, he came over to us business people sitting on the edges and asked if we had any questions. And the first question was, well, when you're trying to do nothing with God, what are you doing? (laughs) And yes, like you, (laughs) he saw the irony in that question. How do you do nothing? And he said, well, take out your day books, he said. We didn't have iPhones in those days. Look at the people you're going to see each day, and he says, I'm going to give you another five minute exercise. Start every day wasting five minutes doing nothing with God, and then wasting another five minutes with the people you know you're going to meet that day, and do nothing with them. And if you do that for a month, he will change your life. Uh, I did that for a month, it might be why I'm here. <laughs> Then they asked him, okay, so you're doing nothing with God. What are you doing? And he said, well, okay, if you need something to do while you're trying to do nothing with God, for example, you could recite the first line of the 23rd Psalm to yourself. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I shall want. He says, if you do that honestly for five minutes, you'll realize you're a liar. The Lord may be your shepherd, but there's all kinds of things I want. This both and... The Lord is my shepherd, but I want this. And he said, the minute you realize you're a liar, a higher truth, a transcendent truth enters. The Lord is my shepherd, and there's nothing else I need. And yes, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. So every day Jesus comes in that moment of five minutes of silence and says, what do you want? And again I say, you know, I'm not sure something, where he's staying. And again, Jesus says, come and see. Keep coming, and you will keep seeing. This is the daily journey of faith. One of my favorite albums of all time, which probably dates me, is U2's Joshua Tree album. And in there is a song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This, I think, song holds this tension. that This balancing of heaven and earth. I've climbed the highest mountain. He describes all his experiences of searching for God. I've run through the fields only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips. I've felt healing in her fingertips. It burned like a fire, this burning desire. I've spoken with the tongues of angels. I have held the hand of the devil. And it was warm in the night, but I was cold as stone. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom to come. Then all the colors will bleed into one. Bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds. You broke the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. And you know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This song touches on a truth that is embedded in all of us. A deep sense of longing and desire for something that this present world, our experience, cannot fully satisfy. It's a song of both doubt and faithfulness. That balancing of heaven and earth. It feels like I've found enough to choose love. But when I suffer, I don't always understand. And my early answer to this question, what are you looking for, were exciting even though they were often bordering on simple, narrow, and sometimes bad certainties. But eventually they felt incomplete or occasionally too narrow. And I looked for more answers, other answers, and I found them. And again, they gave me a temporary reprieve from my uncertainty. And it felt like God was with me but often only for a while. And eventually I got tired of this pattern of coming and seeing and changing my mind and seeing bigger things. But then again, something happened in my life, and I was asked again the question, what are you looking for? With me responding, where are you dwelling now? Where are you biding now? And again, the answer came, come and see. That's living the Christian life. God desires a unique relationship with each of us, with each of you. Why else would God create you in his own image or with a spark of the divine in you? Not to make you sure of what you think is right or have the correct ideas, individually or collectively, but just to love on us uniquely, continually asking, what are you looking for? And even when we're not sure what we want or need, we can ask, where are you? And he always answers. Keep coming, and you will keep seeing. Amen.